0: From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, Spirit ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schock.
1: Psalm 137.9, for example, I think is probably the worst verse in the Bible, where God says, um, you should be happy to take the little babies and dash them against the stones. It didn't say that wartime might cause some regrettable collateral damage, but in Psalm 137.9, The Babylonian children, you should be happy to pick up those babies and throw them against the rocks. I mean, that's just gross. That's just like something that a, you know... Yeah, a, a sick person would say.
0: My guest is Dan Barker. He's on Skype with me from uh, his home in Wisconsin. He is the author of God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction. Uh, previous books uh, include uh, Godless, How an Evangelical Preacher Became One of the World's Leading Atheists, and uh, Life-Driven Purpose, How an Atheist Finds Meaning. He's a co-president of Freedom From Religion Foundation, and he hosts a radio show called Free Thought Radio. Uh, welcome, Dan, to Progressive Spirit.
1: Hi, thank you, John. Nice to talk with you.
0: Well, let's talk about uh, your, your brand-new book just out, God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction. Uh, how did, I just laughed because the title is just right out there. Uh, how did you happen to write this book?
1: Well, this was sort of an accidental book. I wasn't thinking about writing this. Uh, I had just written the previous one about life-driven purpose, you know, which is taking Rick Warren upside down, purpose-driven life, and flipping right. it. Uh, but um, Richard Dawkins sent me an email saying that he needed help with Bible verses to document that famous sentence of his that's in the God Delusion. The first sentence in chapter 2 of the God Delusion, if you read it, is, it it's it's a passionate book, but it doesn't deserve the criticisms of being strident and contentious and angry. It's a, it's a pretty even-level book there, except for that one sentence, and even Dawkins admits, He's received more criticism for that one sentence than anything else he's ever written. So he wanted me to help him document it. Um, Should I read the sentence here? Yeah,
0: go ahead, please.
1: Um, um, Chapter 2 of The God Delusion, uh, Richard says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. <laughs> and, whenever, and whenever whenever, he tells that in, uh, in his speeches, everybody laughs and claps. Uh, um, so, uh, anyway... So,
0: so, your book is uh, an exegesis, so to speak, of uh, of that paragraph.
1: Well, yeah. Originally, it was just it wasn't going to be a book. Originally, he was going to make a um, presentation slide, you know, like a PowerPoint, uh, except he uses Keynote, and we're both Mac people, so I guess uh, you know Mac and PC is kind of like Catholic and Protestants, you know. So anyway, <laughs> uh, he uh, he was going to make this slide where the body of the sentence the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, would be like a spider with 19 legs going out, with each of those 19 nasty characteristics in that sentence, that you could click on one of the legs, like you could click on um, ethnic cleanser, then up would pop the Bible verse. Uh, You shall drive out all the inhabitants from the land, for I have given you the land to possess followed by a list so that he could prove to everybody. See, each of those words. Well, after a while, we were working on this. Uh, I came up with more than 1,500 verses. And it was way too much for a slide. And then he had the idea. uh, Why not turn it into a book with one chapter for each one of those spider legs? And so that's where the book came from. Um, And and there are 19 chapters. Part one of the book is called Dawkins was right mm-hmm. with each of those 19 words documented. But I found some more that he overlooked. Or maybe he thought 19 was enough, you know. I found uh, some additional words like pyromaniacal and vaxicidal and slavemonger and so on. So part two of the book is called Dawkins was too kind. And I have eight more chapters uh, documenting more nasty characteristics of the God of the Bible.
0: You know, I, I remember in my, my first uh, church, uh, thought it'd be a great idea to read the Bible through cover to cover, and, and one of my church members uh, had young children. He was a teacher, and he thought, well, great idea. Teach the kids morality, you know. And so he comes back to me angry <laughs> that I had him read this book. He says, it's, it's violent, and, and not only just humans violent, but, but God tells them to go and kill all the Canaanites and the women and children. Uh, people really don't often know what's in the Bible.
1: Yeah, and I think I think most Christians and Jews are are good people. They're kind and moral. And I think if if they're claiming that they love and worship the God of the Bible, which many of them do, most of them do, they have either abandoned all sense of moral judgment or they've never read it. And I and I I have to assume the latter. I think I think most believers in fact most pastors don't even really read it. They kind of pick sermon texts, you know. And I, since most people are smarter and kinder and nicer than the God of the Bible, I think they, they just never opened it and read it. And Isaac Asimov said, properly read, the Bible is the most potent force for atheism ever conceived. And, um, you know, A.A. Uh, A. Milne, who wrote Winnie the Pooh. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, the Old Testament is probably responsible for more atheists than any other thing ever written. Because if you actually open it and read it, you have to, it's like Nietzsche said, I have to put on gloves before reading it. And it's, um, we're doing the audiobook right now in the studio. We're, we're up to chapter uh, 16. And I and Buzz Kemper, Buzz Camper is the voice talent who's doing the voice of God. Uh-huh. And after each of our sessions, last night even, we could hardly look at each other because we were reading some of these horrible. Sexual molestations and uh, God threatening that when the child comes from between your legs and you give birth, you shall eat the flesh of your child because you were not faithful. I mean, stuff that you would never, you know, it's not, it's not just R-rated, it's X-rated, some of the stuff that's in that book. And it's, um, you know, I'm ashamed that I ever pretended to love that that creature.
0: <laughs> you do smash some idols with this book. Um, for example, God, uh, presumed by Christians or Jews or faithful folks or whatever, as author of the Bible, to God as character in the Bible. Uh, Jack Miles did something similar uh, in the mid-90s with his book, uh, God, a Biography. And that that's one of the idols that gets kind of shaken up, turned around with the, a new way of looking at the Bible like that, or not a divinely written book or a history of the world at all, but in fact, mostly fiction. Um, that's new territory for a lot of people to even think of it in that way. And then, of course, third, as, as you have pointed out, that God's just simply not a nice guy, uh, not not so good. Um, in fact, quite, quite the opposite.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, in our defense, you know, Richard and I sometimes get accused of— um, actually believing in god because we're criticizing if you're criticizing god aren't don't you ag- aren't you agreeing that he at least exists and i have to point out the word fiction is right on the cover of the book right he's the most unpleasant character in all fiction right and uh, you know bishop spong uh, the former bishop spong who's mm-hmm. a believing christian his new book out is uh, all about that um, he thinks and he makes a case that the early jews the early israelites and even the early christians did not think the stories were literal. Mm-hmm. They all knew back then that these were – like like when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, the parable, no one expects that there actually was a prodigal son. Jesus made up a story, right? And it doesn't matter if there was an actual prodigal son with an address and a social security number. I mean, he doesn't even have a name, right? It's the moral lesson underneath the parable that matters, and the actual truth of the story doesn't. So the Israelites made a, a story about Adam and even the talking serpent. They didn't really think that was a true story. It was a parable that they made up to illustrate some moral tale. But it was only in the 2nd to 4th centuries after Christianity that the church started requiring that even the Gospels themselves had to be historically literal you know, accounts. So especially in the 20th century now with fundamentalism where they, they demand the entire Bible had to be literal truth.
0: Well, that's a lot of it, isn't it? This view of the Bible that it is history or of divine origin or that anything the character God does must be right and good. Now, nobody cares that Zeus is right and good. So, so why should Yahweh be good and right, especially when he isn't and is, in fact, the opposite? Defending a bad character, God in this case, is, is putting halos around bad texts.
1: Yeah, because religion equals good in, in a wow. lot of people's minds, and um, I, I kind of think it's like uh, – this This is kind of a sloppy parallel, but I think it's kind of like an abused wife who keeps defending her husband, right? Because he's her husband, and what's she going to do? And she's made a commitment to him, and she's going to stick with him. When She ought to leave. She had to dump the jerk and go to a shelter or something, but – he keeps coming back, and the Bible has a lot of these passages where God says, I I caused the wounds, and then I healed the wounds because I love you. Well, you know, that's like some some bullying boyfriends beating the woman and says, "Oh, here, honey, let me put a Band-Aid on that because I love you. I mean, it's just this psychological dependency upon this alpha male God who has the power to reward and punish, and if you don't, Tell him how great he is, you're going to be in trouble. There's something in our species that I think, and Hector Garcia in his book, Alpha God, makes a point that we probably got it from our primate relatives, our primate ancestors. There is the big man, the big alpha male up there, and when he comes back with the meat, we often to extend our hands, begging to this, you know, and, and he controls the, the breeding, he controls the females, he controls the territory, he controls who gets to live and who gets to die. And I think Our species is kind of saddled with that uh, primate mentality that this god, big alpha male, we better be nice to him. The king, the monarch, the sovereign, the dictator, the plantation owner, whatever you call it, Uh, we we better go along with it and tell him how great he is, even though his actions
0: are totally different.
1: Progressive Spirit. Spirituality. Social justice. ProgressiveSpirit.net
0: Dan Barker is my guest. He's the author of God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All of Fiction, which takes uh, a sentence of um, uh, Richard Dawkins' book uh, that's quite famous about how God is uh, unforgiving, control freak, vindictive, and so forth. And in this book explains and and lists examples from the texts themselves. Uh, Can you give me a couple of examples, some of your, your favorite ones?
1: Well, there's one that I missed when I was a preacher in Jeremiah 13, where the, Babylon, uh, the the Israelites are complaining, why are the Babylonians attacking us? And God says, well, I'm allowing them to attack you because you have forsaken me and you've, you have not loved me. And by the way, rarely in the Old Testament are the words wicked and evil and abomination connected with anything that you and I would consider moral actions. People are called wicked and evil simply because... They worshiped a different God or they didn't kiss God's feet enough or they didn't obey him enough. But in Jeremiah 13, God says to the Israelites, well, the Babylonians, I'm allowing them to attack you because you were not faithful to me. And when the Babylonians come and they invade you and when and you know what happens to women during wartime, he says they shall lift up your skirts. And he says then. Uh, When this is happening to you, I want you to know that I, the Lord, am lifting up your skirts. In other words, the God of the Old Testament is taking credit for wartime rape of the Israelite women. And he's bragging about it. And there's another passage uh, in Isaiah where um, the daughters of Zion were were haughty and walked with outstretched necks. Therefore, the Lord will will smite their head with a scab and the Lord will discover their secret parts. That's sexual molestation. That word path there for secret parts. Well, we we know what part of a bu- woman's body they're talking about. Lifting up skirts and as sexually and calling them whores and calling them prostitutes and calling the nation of Israel like a like an adulteress. It's uh, it's full of all of this, you know, sexual imagery of the writers of the books, who must have been these immature, sexually frustrated Hebrew males who considered females to be their property, just like the primates. Uh, tribes, you know, groups, and so they had to control the female, and God had to control his lover in his little love nest called the promised land. Uh, you know, like like some husband saying, I love you, but it's all top down. It's just all this, you know, I love you, and you better love me or else you're going to burn. So those are just a few examples. Psalm one thirty seven nine, for example, I think is probably the worst verse in the Bible, where God says, um, you should be happy to take the little babies and dash them against the stones. It didn't yeah. say that wartime might cause some regrettable collateral damage, but in Psalm seven nine, the Babylonian children, you should be happy to pick up those babies and throw them against the rocks. I mean, that's just gross. That's just like something that a, you know, you know, a, a sick person would say.
0: Okay, so now you were an evangelical preacher, and then uh, from 1970, I think, to around 84, when When you left, uh, I don't know if I got the dates exactly right. So for you, you 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 knew the Bible, you read it, you preached from it. Um, what did you how did you look at those texts and look at the character of God then?
1: Yeah, well, you know you look at it through the eyes of devotion, just mm-hmm. like you say, you require that he's good, and so you don't see it. And I remember in Bible school, it is yeah. a specific. I remember reading psalm one thirty seven nine about dashing the babies. And one of my classmates, Leo, he said, look at this. This is in the Bible. And I remember to this day that I did not see it as an atrocity. I took it like a sermon text. And I said, oh, well, you know what that means. The little babies are the little precious sins in your life that you don't want to let go of uh, because you you, you you still want to live a selfish life. But to be a good Christian, you have to be happy to take those little sins and dash them against the rock. And I turned this horrible atrocity into like a Sunday morning's you know, warm, fuzzy sermon kind of a thing. I did not see, I did not picture back in those times an Hebrew warrior coming up to some little baby and doing that. Or, you know, some, some Hebrew, you know, man of God coming into some Canaanite village about to chop off the head of a three-year-old and turning to the parent and saying, by the way. This will all make sense through the eyes of Jesus someday, that God has a higher plan. You don't understand it now. It didn't matter to those people then. I mean, that the atrocities were happening then, and for you and me in the 20th century to pretend like we can whitewash it all because God has a higher plan, it's in total abnegation of, of moral judgment.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, uh, it it takes those eyes being opened. Uh, the the story of Noah and the flood, and we think what a happy thing all the animals and their heads hanging out the windows of the ark and the rainbow. But it's a pretty bloody story, as you as you well, pointed out in the book itself. Uh, everybody's killed, including the animals.
1: Yeah, and so what crime did the butterflies and the kitty cats commit to be? You know, everything everything was killed. If you think about it. That was, if it really happened, of course, yeah. believers, believers should wish that never happened because it makes their god the, the committer of the single largest act of genocide in all history. There were about 20 million people on the planet at that time in history. So one single act of genocide w- wiped out 99.99996% of the whole human race.
0: I, I want to push back just for a second on you. Now, there are those who will say, but the Bible has been a source of liberation, uh, aspect of the civil rights movement, for example, uh, uh, Exodus story, or looking at the prophets uh, Amos and say, you know, talking about uh, justice and, and so forth, that people have found within it a source of liberation or a source of hope. Uh, is God, as you understand it, kind of all bad all the time?
1: There are some good things in the Bible, And it would be surprising if there were not. There are a couple of places where wicked and evil are actually associated with what you and I might call immoral behavior. Mm -hmm. Like a disobedient son should be stoned to death, but it's because he's a drunkard, right? So, I mean, we do see some moral things. And uh, Bible stories or stories from any religious tradition, even from my Native American tradition, the story of the two wolves or the turtle, you know, those stories, I don't think, the bible was the cause of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. i think there were some uh, resonant uh, uh analogies you could say so even though the exodus never happened that's that, that's just a myth there's sure. no evidence that the jews were enslaved or that they spent 40 years there would have been about three million people spending 40 years in that little peninsula about about, about 100 miles across so it didn't happen but it's a story it's a mythical story about the formation of this nation so you can use some of those stories as parallels to your current struggles, but the civil rights movement did not come out of the Bible. If you look at the Bible, they should all go back into slavery, because the Bible's pro-slavery, and the Bible, uh, you know, the whole point of the Bible was fear, really, to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So yeah, in a literary sense, any religious tradition can pull some of its parables. In some of the stories to inform a current struggle that we're having right now. But uh, I would ask somebody, if you think the civil rights movement came out of the Bible, well, where? Where in the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. Even that verse in Galatians that said, in heaven there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. That only applied to baptized Christians. And it it explicitly excluded Arabs. All Arabs were excluded from that passage. So it was a very exclusive kind of a thing. But uh, yeah, you're right, there, as, as far as literature goes, we might draw from the story of the big bad wolf and the three little pigs. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that our religious traditions can inform our current challenges. You're listening to Progressive Spirit with John
0: Chuck. Dan Barker, my guest, uh, he's the author of God, uh, the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Well, would you say, overall, uh, the, the history of uh, the West... Uh, certainly informed by the Bible itself, is is worse off for it, or better? How, how would we make that uh, kind of judgment? I mean, certainly we we know that the Bible uh, and its myths and its metaphors and its uh, slogans as a part of uh, our daily language and whatnot. Um, is is it time to grow beyond uh, this book?
1: Well, I don't think the Bible can take credit for the progress in western countries. Okay. I think we have progressed in spite of the Bible. The fact that most of the people involved in some of the progress in western countries were Christian churchgoers does not mean that the Christian church going is the is the source. I think we've progressed in spite of the Bible. I think we have risen above the brutality. I think uh, and, and when these people make that claim, ask them, well, okay, which value from the Bible um, informed the foundation of the United States of America? Tell me one. Give me one. They they say this, but, um, you know, um, thou shalt love the Lord your God. In fact, the Bible is very anti-American, if you think about it. The principles that are in the Bible and the New Testament go against our First Amendment, our Constitutional Convention. They did not even pray formally. They never once mentioned the Bible. They never once mentioned the Ten Commandments in that whole formation of it. And yet there are believers today who think for some reason Western culture has been, you know, informed by Judeo-Christian values. Well, what are those values? And yeah, there are some values. Peace, right? There's peace in the New Testament, but all religions talk about peace. Big deal. Even atheists and agnostics, uh, you know, have peace and love. Those are human values. Those are not Christian values. Those are not religious values. There are many values that many religions have that transcend religions, and in fact, they are the values by which you and I judge whether a religion is good or bad in the first place, which means those values are not coming from within the religion. They are transcending human values uh, that – you know, if we had not had the Ten Commandments – would it have never dawned on the human race that there's something wrong with killing? Are we that stupid? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. can we not have figured out a society without some tablets being handed down to us from some smoking, quaking mountaintop? So, so on the one hand, I say no to the Bible, but on the other hand, I say yes to Christians because I think most Christians and Jews and believers are wonderful people. They, they have contributed to progress, and they've contributed to freedom, and they've been a wonderful part of our society. And let's walk shoulder to shoulder and not pretend that it comes out of one or other religious tradition.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, many people uh, who are within a faith tradition are, are that in spite of the Bible or in spite of their uh, religious texts or doctrines or, or history. The dangerous part, I find, uh, in America is the, the right-wing people who actually kind of like this God of the Bible. Um, who really, you know, think that this is a a great guy to emulate uh, in terms of, you know, having a Christian dominionism and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, and that's the importance, I think, uh, of your work uh, with the Freedom From Religion Foundation.
1: Yeah, well, those people, those extreme believers in Christianity, they don't represent all Christians. I'm sure you know there are moderates and liberals who are just as upset with them as we atheists are because they think they're misrepresenting. Uh, but to be fair, um, there are some benefits from religion, and, and there are natural, secular, cultural benefits. Uh, religion, for a lot of believers, is a vehicle for good works. Mm-hmm. So they will get involved in Lutheran social services or Jewish social services, and they, and they will go to a soup kitchen. And their religion can be a conduit, let's say, for their good, although a lot of us non-believers can do the same thing without that conduit still it's to their credit that they're using it and in the civil rights movement although the bible and christianity were not the impetus for you know for civil rights the church especially in the south did become something of a watering hole it became sort of a gathering place where where the blacks felt they were in a space that was comfortable to them they could go to those churches they could meet together and feel like they had a a vehicle for for affecting this positive change in the world. So in that sense, if a church is functioning as a community, uh, well, then by all means, it's a a wonderful part of society. But it doesn't have to be a religious community to affect the same results.
0: Dan Barker, my guest, author of God, the most unpleasant character in all fiction. I have just about a minute left, but I want to thank you for this work. I'm a minister. But I think that religion is in need of an upgrade, and part of that upgrade is being honest with our texts and doing away with superstition, fear, and superiority, among other things. So I want to give you the last word. Anything you'd like to add?
1: Well, I think I agree with you pretty much 100%, just from talking to you and hearing you talk here, that ultimately people should be judged by their deeds, not by their creeds. Yeah. It's how people live. It's how we treat each other. And don't we all do that? We we look, if somebody's being violent or hurtful, we say, no, that's bad. And you don't need religion for that. But if, if you do need religion for that, then by all means, you know, if somebody's uh, struggling with alcoholism and they need a higher power to stay sober – then who am I to interfere with that need of theirs? They're, they're going to need that higher power. By all means, stay sober, whatever, you, whatever it takes, right? Mm-hmm. But there are tens of millions of us in this country who don't need that. We, we have found a non-religious way to get to the same goal that you and I are both aiming for, a world with more understanding and a world with less violence,
0: Dan Barker has been my guest on Progressive Spirit. He's the author of God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All Fiction. Thanks for being with me today.
1: Thank you, John. It was really fun.
0: You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. Find more information and links to podcasts at ProgressiveSpirit.com net You can listen to Progressive Spirit via podcast on your favorite podcast app. Progressive Spirit is a weekly half-hour program now in its fifth year. Free to radio stations through Pacifica Audio Port. Among other distribution methods, Progressive Spirit is produced at KBOO Portland. I'm John Schack. Be well.